This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. Always great to have your company. Now on the show today, populism comes to Sweden. Now we've seen xenophobic right-wing parties in Europe grow stronger in recent years. But who would have thought that liberal, progressive, prosperous Sweden would go the same way? We take a look at the country's recent elections. And later on, how Venezuela went from being the world's wealthiest economy to an economic basket case. Stay with us for that. First to Sweden, I spent several days in Stockholm about a year ago, and frankly, I could understand why Sweden is widely seen as a beacon of liberalism, prosperity, progress. Unlike many parts of Europe, you have economic growth that's high, unemployment is low. Sure, there's inequality, that's risen, but like in Australia, it remains relatively low. There is, simply put, no anti-globalisation backlash in Sweden. And it's frequently ranked high in the International Happiness League tables. And yet, the recent elections show that although they did not do as well as many pundits predicted, right-wing populists are now an electoral force in this Nordic country. Now, to make sense of all of this, let's hear from Sherry Berman. She's a professor of political science at Barnard College in New York. That's at Columbia. And she's author of Democracy and Dictatorship in Europe, From the Entente Regime to the Present Day. That's forthcoming by Oxford University Press. Sherry, welcome to ABC Radio. I'm very glad to be here. Now, xenophobic nativist parties are growing more powerful across Europe. Sweden has been largely immune to this proliferating populism until now. Why? question because definitely the um, 18% of the vote that they got is quite worrisome. So as I think you already mentioned, Sweden has been doing quite well economically. Um, And so a lot of the factors that people normally associate with backlashes against liberal democracy are absent. Unemployment is low, growth is high, the economy is competitive, consistently ranked as one of the most innovative economies on the planet and one of the happiest societies in the world. So really a lot of the factors we normally associate with populism are absent. That does not mean there aren't economic problems, but certainly less than in many other countries. Um, And also, generally, Sweden is doing well on a whole variety of other factors. Um, People still have relatively high trust in government. They're still relatively trusting of other institutions like the media. So again, a lot of the markers of populism are simply absent in Sweden. So what, how then do you account for the fact that these um, right-wing populists, this is the Sweden Democrats, uh, they scored about 18% of the vote, up from 6% in 2010. Why are they suddenly more popular? Well, there are a whole variety of reasons. The trigger, I would say, was a very dramatic increase in immigration after the refugee crisis of 2015-16. Sweden was extraordinarily generous in letting in refugees from places like Syria. They took in twice as many percentage-wise as Germany did. And the country's share, foreign-born share of the population has simply skyrocketed over the past decade or so with a very large bump, as I said, in 2015, 2016. And so what you had was this very dramatic 
social and demographic change, with the, which the populists largely exploited and blamed the immigrants for other problems in Swedish society. As you mentioned, there has been some rising um, inequality. There also has been some deterioration in the welfare state. And so populists in Sweden as elsewhere have used immigrants to blame for other problems that the country has. So is it fair to say that the Swedish government's lax border controls, uh, acceptance of high numbers of Middle Eastern migrants primarily, that's contributed to a backlash against immigration, but also to the rise of Sweden Democrats, right? Well, it depends, I would say, on what you mean by lax border controls. There was a conscious decision to take in refugees, so it wasn't as if this was uncontrolled. What I will say is that the generous and openness of the Swedish state was probably not matched by sufficient planning for how one would accommodate a dramatic influx of people from very different educational backgrounds with different skill sets, for the most part, than the Swedish labor market needs, from different religious backgrounds, from different cultural backgrounds. So it wasn't so much that it was unplanned or out of control, but rather there wasn't probably enough planning done on the practical side for how to accommodate all of these new people in the Swedish labor market and Swedish society. Yeah, Douglas Murray, who's written this book, The Strange Death of Europe, he's a past guest on RN, he says that at the height of the crisis, the refugee crisis, 2015-2016, the Swedish interior minister admitted that of the 163,000 people who'd arrived in Sweden, only around half had any legitimate claim to be in the country. Right. So this is basically what happened. There was this huge inflow. And because places like Sweden and Germany were so generous, what you got is a dramatic influx of people. Many of them were legitimate refugees, but many of them were migrants who basically moved along the routes that were open to come to the places that would accept them because, as we know, lots of other countries would not. So again, not very much planning for how to administer these flows, not very much planning for how to screen, not very much planning or not enough planning, I would say, for again, how to figure out what to do with all of these people once they got there so that other kinds of problems did not arise. What about the consensus view in Brussels, Sherry, um, that, that is for a quick integration of foreigners? Because clearly the native populations across Europe and presumably in Sweden, they're in decline. So why not replenish them with newcomers, with all the cultural advantages of a multicultural society? Well, that's a great idea. And certainly from a demographic perspective, it makes some sense. But one, what one must recognize is that in a place like Sweden, unlike in some other countries, Canada, for example, most of the people who were coming were not people with high skills. They weren't people who knew the language. And so any kind of bump that would come from, you know, all of these new potential citizens would have to be down the road after significant, like I said, programs were put in place to bring these people up to speed as far as the skills that the Swedish economy requires, education levels and language. So one might very well, again, see the benefits and one should see the benefits of these things down the road. But to make those things occur, a much stronger, much larger apparatus needs to be in place, again, to integrate these folks into the society and into the economy. Well, let's get your reaction to something that the distinguished BBC journalist, Andrew Neil, this is what he told me last week. If the people don't think you've got control of the borders, they're much more likely to vote for a nativist, nationalist, 
anti-migrant parties. Mm. And you've seen that in Italy, where they're now in power. You've seen it in Hungary, where they're now in power. You've seen it in Poland, where they're now in power. You may, you've seen it in Germany, where the AFD, which is pretty much a hard-right party, has now got over 90 seats in the German parliament. You may see it this weekend with the Sweden Democrats. Whereas here in Australia, for all your chopping and changing of prime ministers, you don't really have a hard-right nativist mm. Uh, anti-migrant party that is, of course, I know you've got the One Nation. Mm. That's stuff, but, more or less a spent force anyway. But, yeah. yeah, so it's not, so you don't have that. You mm. haven't got the Lega Norda that Italy has. You haven't got the Sweden Democrats. You haven't got the AFD. And my guess would be that that's because in general, you may want to argue about the level of immigration, but most people seem to think you control your borders. Mm. The lesson is clear. If you seem not to be controlling your borders, politics is more likely to go to the extremes. Now, that was Andrew Neil from the BBC. He was on Between the Lines last week. Sherry Berman. So I think there's some truth to that, but I think I would also disagree with the spin that he gave. Um, I think it is definitely the case that if people feel like governments are either unable or unwilling to respond to the challenges that their societies face, they get very frustrated, they get very dissatisfied, they get very angry, and they're willing to vote for parties who promise to kind of blow the whole system up. However, controlling immigration does not necessarily mean shutting down your borders. That has been a solution that Australia has tried in the past. It does mean, though, that if you are going to let certain numbers of immigrants, refugees, whatever in, that you must have plans to make sure, again, that they can be integrated into the labor market and integrated in society. So it's a question, I think, not of closing borders, but of making sure that the government is up to whatever challenges are associated with however many numbers of folks you decide to let in. So I agree that when people feel that governments are not in control, they are willing to vote for anti-establishment, radical, even nasty, nativist, populist parties. But I don't think that necessarily implies that there can't be a space for refugees or immigrants or what have you. But it does mean that governments have to be able to convince their citizens that they can control what's going on within their borders, not just control the borders themselves. Intriguingly, though, at the height of the Tampa asylum seeker standoff in 2001, John Howard put in place these tough border protection policies, but they coincided with a doubling of the legal annual immigration rate with a controlled refugee program. Andrew Neil's argument is that if you have tough border protection policy, you then boost public confidence in the system, which then allows high levels of legal immigration. You don't see that in Europe, though, do you, Sherry? Well, it depends on what you mean. There are countries, again, Australia may be one, Canada is another, that has very specific rules on who can come in. And they tend to, therefore, cherry-pick, so to speak, the most educated um, the most resourced immigrants, right? That's kind of easy picking. What Sweden tried to do and what Germany did was something very noble. It said, look, these people are fleeing from war-torn situations. They are desperate. And we believe it is our humanitarian duty to let them in. That is noble. The question, though, is are you prepared to deal with the challenges that kind of thing that accompanies those kinds of demographic and social shifts? You should not, I think, from the perspective of keeping your citizens' faith in liberal democracy, do one without the other. 
right? So if you're going to let people in, then you must be sure that you have in place the administrative infrastructure, the policies, the resources to make sure that those flows are controlled and those people can again be absorbed into society and the labor market. I think the disjuncture is what's important, not so much the absolute, let's say the absolute amount alone. Sherry Berman is author of Democracy and Dictatorship in Europe. That's coming out in a few months. And we're putting Sweden in the context of rising populist and nativist parties, both left and right, all across the continent. You think about Italy, Austria, the AFD party in Germany, Hungary, Poland, the Netherlands. I think Le Pen won about 35% in France and so on. Add the Sweden Democrats to the growing list. Uh, Sherry, tell us about the Sweden Democrats because they have their roots in neo-Nazism. How far are those roots still showing? Well, that's a great question um, because what the party has tried to do, like its counterparts in other areas of Europe, is it's tried to kind of shed this really particularly nasty heritage. So it's tried to purge from the party people with overt ties to neo-Nazi movements and folks saying really overtly racist things. But like in other parts of Europe, they've only been partially successful. I mean, every so often their leaders come out with some fairly outrageous statements, but the idea is to try to go mainstream. The idea is to try to attract as many voters as possible. And so, you know, um, your supporters marching in the street making neo-Nazi salutes or your leaders saying really particularly offensive things is not going to do that. So I would say the party has definitely tried to move in that direction, but it has not it has not fully shed these kinds of overtly racist tendencies or these ties to some particularly nasty groups. To what extent do the Swedish Democrats uh, appeal to voters on the left? Because I noticed that this party, this far right party, support high levels of spending on the welfare state, right? Yes, that's right. And this is, again, a kind of classic what has become now a classic formula in um, Europe, which is kind of national welfareism, right? Which is the Sweden Democrats now claim that they are the ones who are protecting the Swedish welfare state because they blame its problems on immigrants. And so the best way they say to actually protect the Swedish model is by getting rid of all of these freeloaders who are sucking resources out of our welfare state and not participating in the labor market. So this is a very sort of wise message because it enables them both to tap into kind of people's fears about national identity and also attract people who are economically vulnerable, who feel like somebody else is getting resources or support that they are no longer getting. And so this, again, has become a pretty standard part of the populist playbook in Europe. Fascinating. Now, you've written that the Swedish left has been notable for its nationalist pride, which helps explain why the Social Democrats have dominated Swedish politics for the better part of a century. That legacy is now up for grabs. Why? Exactly. And this is, again, something that makes Sweden a particularly um, unusual and potentially worrying case. Unlike in many other parts of Europe, it's the Social Democrats who kind of own the identity as being the protector of the nation. They were the ones who were going to create a more solidaristic, stronger society. They were the ones who associated their efforts and their time and power with protecting the nation. Um, and now the Sweden Democrats are claiming that by letting in these immigrants and by allowing the welfare state to deteriorate, that they no longer can play that role and that it's this populist Sweden Democrats who will do so. So the social Democrats in Sweden, but also elsewhere, really need to reclaim this idea from the right. The right cannot claim that they are defenders of the nation. They cannot claim that they are the ones who are protecting citizens um, in general and societies 
most disadvantaged. This is a really deadly position for the left, and I might add a deadly position for liberal democracy more generally. Now, what now, Sherry? Because no party on either the centre-left, these are the Social Democrats, or the mainstream Conservatives, the centre-right, neither neither has majority control. Question, will either bloc form a coalition with the Sweden Democrats? So that's a great question, because, of course, as we know, in other parts of Europe, this is precisely the trajectory that has occurred, right? Parties have tried to avoid them, but then particularly parties on the right, more traditional parties of the right, as they've seen their vote share decline, have found it almost irresistible to form coalitions with these further right populist parties. Austria is the best example of this, right? So the the traditional parties of the right have said that they will not form coalitions, explicit open coalitions with the Sweden Democrats. The question, however, is though, will they rely on their implicit support to come to power as a minority government? That would be a big change in Sweden, and it would certainly give the Sweden Democrats a very large degree of influence. The party's leader has made clear that for him to support a coalition of the center-right, he expects that his party's priorities will be paid attention to and that certain policies, obviously, particularly on things like immigration, will be incorporated into any minority center-right's new policy agenda in order to um, retain his party's support. Sherry, to be continued, thanks so much for being on Between the Lines. My pleasure. Sherry Berman, she's a professor of political science at Barnard College at Columbia in New York, and she's author of Democracy and Dictatorship in Europe, From the Entente Regime to the Present Day. That's out in February. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Well, we all know about those developing nations, especially in Asia, that have seen dramatically improved living standards in recent decades. Singapore, of course, is, among others, a classic rags-to-riches story on the global stage, isn't it? But can you think of a rich nation with a vast abundance of natural resources that's now a basket case, that suffers from despotism, an economy in freefall, runaway inflation, criminality, disease, starvation, mass emigration, waves of refugees fleeing this socialist utopia. Can you name the country? Well, it's Venezuela. Now, Daniel Pipes is an expert on the Middle East. He's been a past guest with me on RN. But I was struck by a recent article in the Wall Street Journal. According to Daniel Pipes, the explanation for Venezuela's dramatic decline lies in understanding its embrace of bad ideas, specifically socialism. Daniel, welcome back to Between the Lines. Thank you, Tom. Now, for much of the 20th century, Venezuela was one of the world's fastest growing and richest nations. How so? Well, it had two things. Obviously, there was oil, which was discovered in 1914, but there's also good governance. As we've seen around the world, having vast oil wealth is not enough. Look at Libya. Look at Iraq. Uh, it can actually be detrimental because what it does is it allows the government, which barely taxes its population and which has complete control over the resources, or at least the, the oil resource, to do whatever it likes. So you can get a Gaddafi, a Saddam Hussein, or Hugo Chavez, who simply decide to go off in a direction that that they wish, that no one else has agreed to, or few others have agreed to. And calamity follows. 
Yeah, we say 1950, there was a fourth highest per capita income in the world in Venezuela, behind only the US, Switzerland, New Zealand. Uh, as late as 1980, it boasted one of the world's fastest growing economies in the 20th century. But in your Wall Street Journal article, Daniel, you point out that Venezuela's economy contracted by, these numbers are staggering, 16% in 2016, 14% last year, and a predicted 15% contraction in 2018. You got inflation 2,800% by the end of last year. You got food shortages that led to average weight loss among Venezuelans of something like 11 kilograms in 2017. What caused this crisis? Well, it wasn't civil war. And it wasn't a calamity of, uh, you know, of storms or it wasn't a substitute for oil. It wasn't anything like that. It was socialism. It was Hugo Chavez uh, deciding that he was going to control the economy and rule the country and dominate every aspect of it. And the result is impoverization, criminality, as, as you read before. Uh all these disastrous problems, and there's no end in sight. He died in March 2013. His even more awful successor, Nicolas Maduro, is persisting with these same policies. Uh, people are fleeing across the borders. People are hungry. People are sick. And the military, in conjunction with uh, the civil government, civilian government, are running the show with, uh, as I say, no, no prospect of change. Perhaps something is going on that we can't see, but at this point, it's just getting worse and worse. But we should make it clear that Chavez, he came to power in a fair and democratic way in uh, 1998. That was a presidential election. Now, throughout the 90s, the overwhelming consensus was that socialism had been a proven failure globally. Why did Chavez embrace it so forcefully? He was someone who believed that socialism had not been properly attempted and that he would make a real go of it. This is generally the case with any one of these totalitarian ideologies. Yes, it's been tried before, but not correctly. I will go ahead and do it properly. I will show you how it can be done. And so Chavez did. And granted, he had uh, he had support. Uh, he was convincing. He was a powerful orator. He was a master ideologue. And he convinced many Venezuelans initially that this was a good idea, though they quickly uh, had their doubts about it, he continued down this path as is his successor, and now they have no choice. Now, it's defenders sure. of Chavez, I'm sure we've got some of them who listen to the program regularly, they'll say that that period from 98, his election, through to his death in 2013, he presided over pretty good living standards in Venezuela. How would you respond to that? I'd respond by pointing out that he uh, got about one trillion US dollars in oil revenues in that period, so he had plenty of money to spread around. And that hid, masked uh, the problems that were there. He could make disastrous mistakes, and yet the money kept flowing in. Only about a year after his death in 2014 did oil prices cascade down, and then all the problems became so evident. So Chavez actually died before the problems really became apparent, but he had caused them. They were clear. For example, take the National Oil Company, which produces a vast majority of the country's wealth, export earnings, uh, he replaced the competent professionals with stooges and acolytes and sycophants. Uh, they could keep it going for a while, but eventually it became clear that the 
oil company of Venezuela is a disaster. And the oil production of Venezuela has gone way down as a result because the people there don't know what they're doing. Yeah, this uh, reminds me of um, Milton Freeman, the great free market economist. He once joked that if you, if you put government in charge of the Sahara Desert, in five years, there'd be a shortage of sand. <laughs> you could have said Freeman might have been talking about Venezuela and its oil wealth. It's extraordinary. They don't have enough oil anymore mm. because the company that's supposed to produce it is so incompetent at doing so. Remarkable. If you just tuned in, you're on RN. I'm Tom Switzer, and my guest is Daniel Pipes. He's president of the Middle East Forum. We're talking about how Venezuela's great socialist experiment has brought a country to its knees. Daniel, some scholars, such as the Oxford academic Brian Macbeth, they say the problem with Venezuela has not been the left wing views held by the government per se, but stems from a lack of accountability. That is, it never faced a strong political opposition that countered its left-wing rhetoric with sensible free market economic policies. Fair point? It is true that the opposition was bumbling and made mistakes, but I don't see that you can blame the opposition for the disaster of Chavez. It, yeah, they didn't... They didn't manage to defeat him, but they're not responsible for his rhetoric, his ideology, his spendthriftness, his gutting the national oil company and all these other mistakes he made. Mm. One of the other counter arguments to the Pipes thesis, if you like, is that, I mean, this, this will come from your critics on the left, both in Venezuela and abroad. They say that Venezuela is not, not it's not proper socialism, that it has a mixed economy. Uh, the private sector is a large sector. And moreover, this is their argument, that US sanctions have always been about regime change and these sanctions amount to a blockage of the country. So in these circumstances, this is what your critics say, no nation could survive that economic strangulation. Daniel Pipes. Well, the first point I already anticipated, noting that the apologists for socialism perpetually say, oh, that isn't real socialism. That's uh, government capitalism or some other some other term, Soviet Union is not, China is not, no one has real socialism. But that's not true. These are all socialist experiments that go awry. On the second point, yes, uh, eventually the U.S. government uh, tried to uh, reduce uh, relations with Venezuela. But until now, uh, there are still imports of oil. It was half-hearted at best. And many other countries have done fine, thank you, uh, without trading with the United States. It's not, you don't have to trade with the United States to flourish economically. Uh, it helps. The United States is the dominant economy, is the largest economy in the world. But you, if you have a good system in place, you can sell your oil anywhere. Finally, in your Wall Street Journal article, you put Chavez in the context of the other brutal tyrants of the modern era. Uh, what do they all have in common? What they have in common is a belief that they can rethink life, that they are smart enough, brilliant enough, that they have the clue to how society should be arranged and they will lead the country into a blissful future. And in general, this has been a disaster. Far better 
to have a respect for tradition, a respect for authority, a respect for experience, and to tweak it, to change it modestly, mo moderately, to build on what has been created rather than to go off on your own with your own grand design and ruin things in the process. Yes, Stalin apparently observed ideas are more powerful than guns. Daniel, always a pleasure to have you on ABC Radio. Thank you so much, Tom. Daniel Pipes is president of the Middle East Forum, and you can find his article on the Wall Street Journal under the headline, Venezuela's Tyranny of Bad Ideas. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Between the Lines. It's been great to have your company. And remember, if you'd like to listen to past episodes of the show, just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. Tune in next week. Listener.